So when I'm uh, teaching workshops or day-longs or working with individuals, one of the kind of ways of inquiring that I found is very helpful is the question, in this moment, is there anything between you and feeling really free or feeling happy or peaceful? And then just to check in, and you can kind of check in right now and sense, you know, so what really is between me and feeling at peace or at home in my being right now? And what people usually find when they inquire that way, is is there some feeling in the body of things aren't quite right? Just a feeling. Sometimes it's more exaggerated, like something's wrong. But it's just kind of like, it's a dissatisfaction, like I'm not there yet, there's something else that needs to happen to have things all settle and be okay. You know, there's, there's a kind of a restlessness. And often circling around that are some thoughts about what needs to happen or what needs to be different or how I need to be different or how life needs to be different to be peaceful or okay. So this is habitual. This is the habitual lens that if we stopped at any moment, if we paused and really checked in, we'd find there's this kind of vague or not so vague feeling in the body and thoughts in the mind that are saying things aren't quite okay. And the Buddha called this delusion. He said this delusion, this lens that we um, look through is the source of our suffering. This lens that doesn't see the truth of how things are. So I'd like to explore tonight um, the freedom that comes from seeing the truth, seeing who we are, seeing who others are, seeing through the veil of what is described as kind of enchantment, that we're an enchantment or a dream or a trance, a trance of it's not okay, something's wrong. And it's so familiar, we don't notice it. It's so much a part of our MO that we just move through life just assuming that's the way it is. It just doesn't feel quite right. Okay? So, on this warm summer evening, I'm going to share a story with you uh, that I encountered many years ago now. And it's it's a King Arthur story. Some of you might remember it from a few years ago. And in the story, King Arthur encounters a very powerful enemy, probably the most powerful he's ever encountered, who's a a knight who has these powers to cast a spell over King Arthur that render him helpless and powerless and terrified. And um, he says that the only way that he can have his life back, the only way he can have freedom, is if in seven days he comes back to him with the answer to a question. And he says, I'm going to ask a question, you have to come back with the answer. So the question is, what is it that all women most desire? Now, if you don't know the story, how many of you think you know the answer already? (laughs) We'll we'll wait on this, okay. So So the question is, what is it that all women most desire? And so King Arthur agreed, and he went around asking everyone he encountered. He asked the girl herding geese and the alewife, and he asked great ladies, and they all gave him answers, but none quite rang true. 
So final morning he turns towards the knight's castle with a heavy heart knowing he must submit and die, basically. Okay, so I'm going to read you now how the story is written some. Not far from the knight's castle, Arthur heard a woman's voice, sweet and soft, calling out to him, Now God's greeting to you, my lord, King Arthur, God save and keep you. And he turned and saw a woman in a vivid scarlet gown, the color of hollyberry, sitting on a mound of earth. He had expected the owner of the soft voice to be fair, but she was the most hideous creature he had ever seen. She was sprouting a long, wart-covered nose bent to one side and a long, hairy chin bent to the other. She only had one eye, and that set deep under her jutting brow. Her mouth was no more than a shapeless gash. Her hair hung in gray, twisted locks, and her hands were like brown claws. The jewels that sparkled on her fingers were fine enough for the queen herself. In his amazement, Arthur struck dumb and has to be reminded by her of his code of chivalry and how a knight is to comport himself in the presence of a lady. She mysteriously knows on what errand he rides. She knows that he has asked many women what it is that all women most desire and that all have given him answers and not won the right answer. She then informs the astonished king that she and she alone knows the answer he's seeking and that for her to tell him he will have to swear a solemn oath that he will grant her whatever it is she asks of him in exchange. To this he readily agrees. She beckons him to bend his ear to her lips and whispers into it the answer he is looking for so that not even the trees may hear. The moment he heard it, Arthur knew in his very soul that it was the true answer. He caught his breath in laughter for it was such a simple answer after all. The answer that he was given to the question, what is it that all women most desire, was sovereignty. Sovereignty. Arthur asked what she would have in return, but the lady refused to say until he had tested the answer on the dark night that had terrified him, and so he did so. Arthur went off, gave the true answer, and with it won his freedom. He then made his way back to the spot where the lowly lady was waiting for him. And upon his return, the reward that Dame Ragnell, for that was what her name was, asked was that he bring her from his court one of his own knights of the round table, brave and courteous and good to look upon, and take her as his loving wife. Arthur, staggered and repulsed by this inconceivable request, has to be reminded that he owes his life to her and has made a knightly and kingly promise in exchange for her help. Of course, for Arthur to assign the task to someone would be to disrespect the sovereignty of one of his own knights. The choice must be made freely. When Arthur returned to his court, he told the full story of his week's adventures to an astonished gathering of knights, and his nephew, Sir Gawain, out of loyalty to his uncle, the king, and out of his own goodness, offered to marry the lady himself. Arthur, ashamed and heavy-hearted, would not let Gawain make the vow without seeing her first. So the knights rode out in company the next morning to the woods, and after some time they caught glimpse of scarlet through the trees. Sir Kay and the other knights were sickened by the sight of Lady Ragnell, and some were even insulting to her face. Others turned away in pity or busied themselves with their horses. But Sir Gawain looked steadily at the lady, Something in her pathetic pride and the way she lifted her hideous head caused him to think of a deer with the hounds about it. 
something in the depth of her gaze reached him like a cry for help. He glared about him at his fellow knights. Nay now, why these sideways looks and troubled faces and ill manners? The matter was never in doubt. Did I not last night tell the king I would marry this lady? And marry her I will, if she will have me. And so saying, he jumped down from his horse and knelt before her, saying, My lady Ragnell, will you take me for your husband? The lady looked at him for a moment out of her one eye and then said in a voice so surprisingly sweet, Not you too, Sir Gawain, surely you jest like the others. I was never further from jesting in my life, he protested. She tried then to dissuade him. Think, before it is too late, will you wed one as misshapen and old as I? And what will you secretly feel? You will be shamed and all through me, said the lady, and she wept bitterly. Lady, if I can guard you, be very sure I can also guard myself, Gawain said, glowering around at the other knights with his fighting face on him. Now, lady, come back with me to the castle, for this very evening is our wedding to be celebrated. To which Dame Ragnell replied with tears falling from her one eye, Truly, Sir Gawain, though it is a hard thing to believe, you shall not regret this wedding. Word ran ahead of them from the city gates, and the people came flocking out to see Sir Gawain and his bride go by. All were horrified beyond even their expectations. That evening the wedding took place in the chapel with the queen herself standing beside the bride and the king serving as a groomsman. Sir Lancelot was the first to come forward and kiss the bride on her withered cheek, followed by the other knights, but their words were strangled in their throats when they would have wished her and Sir Gawain joy in their marriage. They could scarcely speak. Only Cabal, the dog, came and licked her hand with a warm, wet tongue and looked up into her face with amber eyes that took no account of her hideous aspect, for the eyes of a hound see differently from the eyes of men. Dinner conversation was feverish and forced, a hollow pretense of gladness through which Sir Gawain and his bride sat rigidly beside the king and queen at the high table. At last the forced festivities came to a close and it was time for the newlyweds to go to the wedding chamber in the castle. There Gawain flung himself into a deeply cushioned chair beside the fire and sat gazing into the flames, not looking to see where his bride might be. A sudden drought caught the candle flame sideways and the embroidered creatures on the wall stirred as though on the edge of life. And somewhere very far off, as though from the heart of an enchanted forest, he fancied he heard the faintest echo of a horn. There was a faint movement at the foot of the bed and the silken rustle of a woman's skirt. And a low, sweet voice said, Gawain, my lord and love, have you no word for me? Can you not even bear to look my way? Gawain forced himself to turn his head and looked and then sprang up in amazement, for there, between the candle sconces, stood the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Lady, he said at half-breath, not sure whether he was awake or dreaming, who are you? Where is my wife, the Lady Ragnell? I am your wife, the Lady Ragnell, said she, whom you found between the oak and the holly tree, and wedded this night in settlement of your king's debt, and maybe a little in kindness." But, but I don't understand, stammered Gawain, you are so changed. Yes, said the maiden, I am changed, am I not? I was under an enchantment, and as yet I am only partly freed from it. But now, for a little while, I may be with you in my true seeming. Is my lord content with his bride? 
She came a little toward him and he reached out and caught her into his arms. Content. Oh, my, my most dear love, I am the happiest man in all the world for I thought to save the honor of the king, my uncle, and I have gained my heart's desire. And yet from the first moment I felt something of you reach out to me and something of me reach back and answer. In a little the lady brought her hands down and set them against his breast and gently held them off. Listen, she said, for now a hard choice lies before you. I told you that I am as yet only partly free from the enchantment that binds me. Because you have taken me for your wife, it is half broken, but no more than half. Damragnell explained that she was now able to appear in her natural form for but half of each day, and Gawain must choose whether he wanted her fair by day and foul by night, or fair by night and foul by day. That is a hard choice indeed, said Gawain. Think, said Lady Ragnell. And Sir Gawain said in a rush, Oh, my dear love, be hideous by day and fair for me alone. Alas, said Lady Ragnell, is that your choice? Must I be hideous and misshapen among all the queen's fair ladies and abide their scorn and pity, when in truth I am as fair as any of them? Oh, Sir Gawain, is this your love? Then Sir Gawain bowed his head. Nay, I was only thinking of myself. If it will make you happier, be fair by day and take your rightful place at court, and at night I shall hear your soft voice in the darkness, and that shall be my content. That was indeed a lover's answer, said Lady Ragnell, but I would be fair for you, not only for the court and the daytime world that means less to me than you do. And Gawain said, Whichever way it is, it is you who must endure the most suffering. And being a woman... I am now thinking that you have more wisdom in such things than I. Make the choice yourself, dear love, and whichever way you choose, I shall be content. Then the Lady Ragnell bent her head into the hollow of his neck and wept and laughed together. O Gawain, my dearest Lord, now by seeing that it was for me to decide, by giving me my own way, by according me the very sovereignty that was the answer to the original riddle, You have broken the spell completely, and I am free of it, to be my true self by day and by night. For seven years Gawain and Ragnell knew great happiness together, and during all that time Gawain was a gentler and kinder and more steadfast man than ever before. But after seven years she left, and no one knew where she went, and something of Gawain went with her. So we begin by asking ourselves, really, what is sovereignty? What does it mean when we use the word sovereignty? And my understanding is it has nothing to do with seeking external power, though to experience sovereignty is fully empowering. It has nothing to do with external power. That sovereignty is the freedom to be truly who we are. That in a moment that you are sovereign, that you experience freedom, it's the freedom to fully express your wholeness, your awareness, your love, your aliveness. That that's the only real sovereignty. And we can hear stories about 
the worst circumstances in the world where people are living with bodies that are prisons in a way or living in prison or in countries that are where there's a tremendous amount of injustice and torment and that is and that creates a tremendous amount of suffering but the real sovereignty isn't changing any of those externals it's an inner freedom it's a freedom to be who we are and what makes sovereignty possible and this is kind of the essence of the Buddhist dharma or path what makes freedom possible is the capacity to recognize what's true that we can only be free if we can see realize who we are if we can see past the veil and every one of us to the degree we're suffering is living in an enchantment of sorts we're living feeling and believing just as Lady Ragnell that we're the mask in some way not that she was identified but the people that saw her we're identified with the mask so we move through the world identified with a self that's less than who we are and we see others to be the mask that's less than who they are we cannot be free until we see what we are this is considered to be right at the core of all the practices realizing our own true nature now, how it happened in this story, and I think it's got, it's got, there's a kind of a beautiful symmetry and sequence in this story of how the freeing occurred. That Gawain with Dame Ragnell, his first seeing of truth, his first seeing through the veil, was when he said that something in her reached out to him, that there was some sense of the humanity and the suffering that brought out empathy. And so it is in our lives that the beginning of seeing through the veil comes when we get a little softened or kinder towards the humanity inside us or inside another person. The suffering is usually the gateway. Does that make sense? That begins to shake this idea of, oh, you're that mask or, oh, I'm this. We begin to soften. So that was the beginning for him. He was able to be sincere about marrying her. He was aligned because there was some connection that came from just seeing her humanity, seeing the being underneath in a certain way. The next deepening was seeing her beauty, not just her physical beauty, but really getting at, ah, the beauty of this being. So he went from compassion to loving kindness. Compassion is when we see the suffering. Love is when we see the goodness and beauty. The third seeing was when he tried out of his conditioning to choose this and choose that, but when he said, you know, you have the wisdom, you know. And there was, in that way, he granted her her sovereignty. He let her choose. These are the three seeings, the three the capacities to pierce through the veil that we're going to be exploring one by one tonight. The seeing that comes when we can see the suffering, the seeing that comes when we can see the goodness, and the seeing that comes when we can see the beingness itself. So that when we look at another, we sense the awareness that's looking back at us. And in that sensing, we see past the mask. The first step is beginning to recognize 
even the way the enchantments take place in our life that we might hear that word and say, yeah, I'm not enchanted and yet when we begin to meditate and get quiet we realize how many moments, what's the swaths of each day we're actually moving through in a rather small-minded and mostly self-centered trance. Does that make sense? (laughs) Do we agree? (laughs) You can kind of reflect on your own enchantments. Sometimes they're obvious, like really obvious, like when we're, you might think of when you got caught in an addictive kind of a mode and you just had to have something and you got secretive and you were sneaky. And most people I know have had that experience when I start, you know, we start confessing with each other. You know, whether it's sneaking around for, you know, thirds of Ben and Jerry's or sneaking around for, you know, to have an extra drink when, you know, you've already had... Whatever it is, there's that sneakiness with addiction that makes us feel small and ashamed. Or maybe you can remember your a past infatuation where... You know, if, if I asked you to raise your hand, like, who has not made a fool of themselves sexually? And I'm not going to ask you, you don't have to do it. But, like, I mean, come on, we just all do really nutty things when we're infatuated. And that's, that's um, enchantment. Some of you might know of Leonard Cohen, who's a really wonderful teacher and many other things. He's 75 now, and he recently gave a talk at a place he had last addressed 15 years ago. And when he started his talk, I think it was, you know, Minneapolis or something, he said, last time I was here, I was, I was 60 years old, just a crazy kid with dreams, you know. <laughs> so it's like we have this idea back then, you know. But it's still happening. And every, if we begin to meditate, we begin to see the trance. To begin to notice, when we get quiet, how many moments we're in a very contracted world. Perhaps one of the biggest expressions of trance, one teacher some years ago addressed a group of people and he said, how many in here believe you're going to die? And just a sprinkling of hands went up. (laughs) That was great. But the fact is, we're all going to die and yet just today or yesterday we got totally uptight because of getting caught in traffic or else, you know, really caught up in reacting to criticism or to a child's dip in grades or to the way a parent... You know, we, we get caught and forget that um, this life is a flash and that the person we're uptight with, we don't know how long we're going to have with that person. It's like Alan Watts put it, he says, it's like winding your watch on the way to the gallows. That's the enchantment, we're in a trance. So in the moments of not seeing that this life is impermanent, in the moments of not seeing that this being we're taking as being a kind of an uptight self or a beleaguered self or an oppressed self, not seeing the awareness and the goodness that's here, in those moments we're not free, there's no sovereignty. So I'm speaking of the inner freedom that comes directly from seeing what's true. Now the biggest way that we, as I've mentioned, live in a trance is this sense of um, something's wrong, something's wrong with me or with you or with life. 
that's the most you know blatant way and I've mentioned, I think, some, some months ago, the story of four wealthy women meeting for lunch at a deli in Miami, and a waiter comes over to the table to greet them, and he, he, basically, he basically goes, Good afternoon, ladies. Is anything okay? You know, so it's like this. When we're in a trance, and, and the assumption is something's missing or something's wrong, our behavior is to control. And again, if you pause and start noticing, you'll notice how many moments you're in some way trying to control your experience. You're moving your body to try to get more comfortable, or you're trying to control another's impression of you, okay? Or in some way trying to control the environment. So we do all these controlling behaviors. The most common is that we stay busy. I call them false refuges, as many of you know. We try to defend ourselves or present ourselves in certain ways. We judge others. And this all sustains, this is the fuel for the trance. This keeps the enchantment going. So to take a moment just before I continue to maybe in your mind reflect on today and just allow yourself to close your eyes And just briefly review the day and sense where there may have been moments of presence, moments where you weren't controlling. As one poet described it, we manage our lives so much that we cover over the mystery. So maybe there were some moments you weren't managing so much. But also to notice where, woven through the day, there really was that trance or that enchantment where you were caught believing that something was wrong with you or another, or life, that something was missing, where there was a cocoon of familiar thoughts that were keeping you from presence. when there wasn't an inner sovereignty, there was not a freedom that you were resting in. Now one of the flags of trance is that when we're inside our thoughts and our stories it seems true and real and it's not the idea that something's wrong, it feels that way. Um, share with you, last year I did a phone session with a woman from New York and she described a situation, her parents uh, both have dementia and they had very carefully gone over with her their will. And then in between that and the next time she talked to them, somehow or other they changed it and left her in a very, very insecure place financially. And when they were talking to her on the phone and they were very innocent about it, they didn't realize they had done something that was 
to her would be wrong. She flew into a rage. So when she talked to me about it, she said, I was bewitched. That was her term. She said, I was bewitched. I heard what they had done. There was no space between that and absolutely being outraged and lashing out at them. I was bewitched. And she was feeling really embarrassed about it. And I mean, how many times for us have we felt remorse or astonishment at how whacked we get when somebody, you know, we lose a temper with a child or get so preoccupied we're not able to really tune in to a loved one and we're just bewitched at the time. So for her, her false refuge was to go into blame. And she became, her, what she got locked into is the aggressor and also the victim. Now, we might listen to that situation. I'm just giving you an example of an enchantment and say, yeah, but, you know, her whole life could be really dramatically different. I mean, she was truly being put in a situation where she would be financially insecure and she's a person with chronic health problems. And so we might say, well, isn't it real? I mean, maybe it's not enchantment. Maybe this is real, a real problem. Maybe something really is wrong. And the Buddha had a really clear and elegant teaching that, um, that it's true that pain is inevitable, that there are times that we do financially struggle, that our bodies do get sick and die, that we do lose others, that what we call something wrong, there is pain, there is loss, that this is in the, on a relative plane, absolutely part of life. And he said that suffering is optional. We can experience sovereignty, a, f- a quality of freedom in the midst of that, and it won't mean that we don't grieve, and it won't mean that we don't feel fear or hurt, but there can be an, in- an intrinsic sense of freedom anyway, in the midst of the greatest of losses. And the question is, so how? How for this woman could she find some freedom in the midst of that? Or how if you're facing a, uh, an illness that's very serious do you find sovereignty? And the Buddhist teachings is not to deny the waves of the experience, in fact open to them. Open to them with a tremendous amount of compassion. But don't forget the ocean. Don't forget that which is timeless and changeless and always here. And what he meant by that is don't forget the presence that we can take refuge in and the love. So I'm going to come back to that because I want to describe what happened for this woman. Because her way of working with this had a similar sequence to Sir Gawain. When she started investigating, okay, so what's going on inside me? She had the belief that they don't care, that I'm not worth caring about. There was fear, but even deeper than the fear was the grief that, she, that her parents didn't care enough. And when she got in touch with that, she allowed herself to open to the waves and the intensity and the force of that grief. And, and in that opening, she felt a tremendous compassion. I sometimes demonstrated by putting her hand on her heart. That's when she could shift from the victim or the oppressed one to that space of holding her own heart and just feeling the presence of compassion. That was the same point 
where Sir Gawain felt some humanity reaching out to him and he reached back. There was a softening of the armor. The heart was tenderizing. That's the first level of seeing. When we see into the humanity, our own or another's. So that was the beginning for her of softening. The next part of the experience for her was that when she could soften like that, she could see through the mask of, oh, they don't care, to, there's dementia, and behind that, of course they care. She could see their intrinsic goodness, their beauty, just the way behind the enchantment Lady Ragnell's beauty shined for it. She could feel in herself the goodness of her own compassion. So that was the second level of seeing past the mask. She's basically going past the enchantment of the oppressed, victimized self. And the third phase was she got very, very peaceful in that. She got very, very present and peaceful and just felt a sense of her own beingness. Beingness. Just presence. And that ultimately is our true refuge. There is a timeless presence. It's that which is looking out through your eyes. It's that which is listening. It's the silence that's listening. There's a stillness that is feeling the sensations and the aliveness. There is a presence that whatever is going on in the foreground, that in the background is aware of awareness. It's timeless, it's sacred, and it's our true home. And when we can become familiar with that presence, we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can be it, then it's that oceanness that can handle the waves. Whether the waves are bankruptcy, disease, loss, death, we can handle it. I often get the question that if what comes up that feels so difficult and we're trying to sense, well, how do we find our freedom in the midst of it, the question usually comes is, isn't that awfully passive? I mean, here she is, she's losing her inheritance. Or somebody else, you know, something's happening or somebody's being attacking and defaming. Isn't there some activity? And just to say that well, I like the, I like the Islamic saying that um, that's, it's basically the words are praise Allah and tie your camel to the post. In other words, take, you take care of the needful. You still do the stuff you need to do to take care of trying to find work, trying to protect your inheritance, trying to let others know if they've said something about you it's not true, what's true. You do what's needful. But the question is where, what's the energy that comes from? Does it come from a free place inside you where there's sovereignty? where there's awareness, where there's wisdom? Or does it come from reactivity? Because when it's from reactivity, all it does is absolutely imprison you inside a false self. You can't see behind the mask. For this woman, when she had gone through that process of opening in compassion to the grief, of seeing the goodness, her own and her parents, and then really just resting in that beingness, she was then able to respond to the situation. Not react, but respond. And she was able to, you know, talk to her parents and find a way back to something that was more workable. 
I sometimes consider this process of seeing past the mask as soul recognition. And I feel like it's, if all we did, if our only practice was to slow down with each other and sense our immediate response, we all have an idea of each other, you know, the person that's like this and that I relate to like this. If we could slow down and just have a few moments of the intention to see who is looking out through those eyes. Who is really the being that's feeling with that heart. If we took just a little more moments of consciousness to see the soul, that would be more profoundly transformative of this earth, more healing, than any action we could take. In fact, our actions would come out of that seeing. The seeing is what's freeing. The biggest trance we're in, and this is going to be the last piece I want to really look at tonight, the biggest trance is the false self-notion we have about who we are that is generally limiting and um, diminishing. In other words, for most people I know, the biggest trance is that we have limiting beliefs about ourselves. And the more that we investigate, the more we can sense how in any moment, if we're not feeling connected with other people, if we're not feeling intimate, if we're not feeling relaxed, it's because in some way there's a filter saying, I'm not okay, I'm falling short. So the biggest mask we have to see through is the mask of our own inadequacy. This is Rachel Raymond. She says, There are laws of our inner world that bind each of us as firmly as gravity. Beliefs we carry about ourselves and about life in general that we experience as true in all conditions and at all times. A feeling of personal unworthiness is one such inner law. One moment of unconditional love may call into question a lifetime of feeling unworthy and invalidate it. Attention is the deepest form of love. If we want to see through the mask of our own limiting idea of self. The pathway is to commit ourselves to deepening attention. We don't listen very much to our inner life. We don't look very much and ask very much, well, how am I feeling? What's really happening? And in the most important way, we don't do this. And by this I'm gesturing, for those that are not here and are listening, to a gentle touch of our own hearts and it doesn't have to be physical, but it can be. And you might just close your eyes right now and bring your hands to your heart and sense a touch that's tender. In other words, experiment. And sense the possibility, even in this moment, right fresh, right here, of just offering some energy or quality of kindness inward just to the life that's here, as if you're sending a message of care to this life right here. And for some it might feel absolutely um, incongruent, like it's just, you're just doing an imposed action. And for others there might be this sense of, 
how sweet it is to just come home into this moment and be kind to this life. And an intuition that if you can be gentle and kind to the life that's here, that kindness and gentleness can hold the world. The beginning of seeing through the trance of unworthiness, seeing through the mask of something's wrong with me, is this simple touch of kindness. So as we've been exploring tonight, our, our practice here and in the world is, when we talk about waking up from the enchantment of, and finding that sovereignty, it has to do with how we pay attention to ourselves and to each other. We can help others wake up by simply paying attention and seeing who they are. But it starts inward. It starts with our own being. So we do the practice as we do here. We take some time to quiet the mind because usually we're just so busy we're, we're just totally rolling forward in that trance. There's not even a, enough of a gap to notice. So we practice a little coming here and as we do we feel our breath, we feel our bodies, we listen to the sounds, we sense a little coming home. Then the next step is mindfulness of what's happening. It's that question, what is going on inside me right now? And this is the invitation to intimacy. What is happening inside me right now? So we begin to pay attention. And if there's something that's difficult, if we're caught in the grip of a painful trance, then as this woman that I had that session with discovered, we begin to open to how it feels and we begin to have that willingness to offer kindness to the pain. That begins to soften things. We begin to see the goodness. Last week I talked about remembering what we love. It's such a powerful practice to to look within and sense what we love about the life inside us, the goodness, to see each other and have that same reflection of what we love. And then the final piece to really experience the fullness of freedom is that we come home to the presence itself that's here. We take refuge in presence. And when we do, when we begin to sense who's here is a human that's suffering and who's here is a beauty that's good and who's here is a beingness itself, there's freedom. We've become the ocean that has room for the waves. And then we're able to look at others and see past their own mask. You can't see past the mask of others if you haven't seen through your own. I see it with parents a lot. I just had... um, my son visiting for three days and I was kind of reflecting on the different phases I've been through of child rearing and uh, he's now 23 and how at each different phase I had a sense of well if only he'd get more disciplined or if only he'd be a little more you know kind and careful with other people and less self-centered or if only he would you know I had these ideas of how he needed to be different to have a happy life but it's become so clear to me that to whatever degree I've offered anything to him, it's never been in my good advice, never. 
<laughs> nothing, nothing wise or smart or guiding or, hun, if you pay more attention to, you know, none of that. It's only been energetically, on some level, when he's gotten from me um, that sense that I saw his goodness. That's what he's gotten from me. That something in him knows that I see his goodness. That I sense the beingness. I sense who's looking out through those eyes. I have a, a friend right now who's struggling with, a, with her teenage son who's got attention deficit disorder and um, different ways of behaviorally acting out. And, and that's her struggle over and over is to get that it feels like something's really wrong. And to go ahead and have compassion for herself and her son in that feeling mode of how hard it is. But to go beyond that and keep remembering who is there the timeless presence that's there and the goodness, to reflect on the goodness story for you of a um, in New York, a a man who was really doing a lot of practice of reflecting on the goodness and doing the metta, the loving-kindness practice and he was mugged at gunpoint and now he had worked on this loving-kindness practice for years so that he could see past the mask and see the goodness in a person so here he was being mugged Okay, side street in Soho disheveled man, scraggly beard dirty blonde hair accosted him so Phil, the man who had been doing the meditation gave him $600 that he had in his wallet the mugger shook his gun and demanded more stalling for time Phil handed him his credit cards and his whole wallet looking dazed and high on some drug the mugger said, I'm going to shoot you Phil responded, no, wait, here's my watch it's an expensive one Disoriented, the mugger took the watch and then waved the gun and said, Again, I'm going to shoot you. Somehow, Phil managed to look at him with loving kindness and said, You don't have to shoot me. You did really good. Look, you got nearly $700. You got credit cards and an expensive watch. You don't have to shoot me. You did good. The mugger, confused, lowered the gun slowly. I did good, he half-asked. You did really good. Go, go and tell your friends you did good days the mugger wandered off saying softly to himself I did good (laughs) so the point isn't that we're going to be able to persuade some drug crazed person out of their violence I mean we might be able to but we might not but the point is that there is a tremendous power in being able to see past the mass, past the appearances to see who's there and the possibility is we call that out in the person the more you see the beauty and this is the power of namaste you know the word namaste in the west, you know, we see someone say hey, how are you? you know, and in Asia namaste is I see the divine in you I see the divine in you the power of namaste is what this story that I shared with you is all about that in some way when we can see first we see the humanity in another person and our heart opens in compassion and then we see the goodness the beauty, the humor, the aliveness and then in the deepest way namaste is I see the beingness I see the sacred that lives through you 
when we train ourselves in this way to see past the mass, to see our own goodness, to see the beingness that's here, we then can move through the world and in some way call forth that goodness and that sacredness in others. So I'd like to close with a um, short meditation, if you will. And this meditation will practice these three gateways of seeing. It's this gateway of seeing the humanity, seeing the goodness, and seeing the beingness itself, being the beingness. So just to invite you to sense this pause right now as an invitation to really come into the moment. Take a few full breaths. And know that as you're guided through this, it just gives you a sense of the possibility of how to practice. And you can practice on your own because sometimes it's not so easy at the pace we do it here to really touch what matters. But you might be surprised to find that you can sense right now maybe a place that you get caught in reactivity, where you are in a trance, and begin to sense some sovereignty or freedom in the midst. So choosing somewhere that you'd like to have a little bit more presence, more awakeness. Might be in the midst of an interaction with a loved one, somewhere at work, some behavior you'd like to be able to be more awake in the midst of. So just as I mentioned at the beginning of that question, what's between you and feeling free in that moment. If it's a conflict with another, perhaps you can feel the grip of anger, fear, hurt. If you're trying to feel more free and relating to a health problem, just to sense the fear that's there and the thoughts that go around what you're believing. Whatever the situation, you might begin with a quality of of kindness. And if it helps to put your hand on your heart, just to sense that you're beginning by sensing where the difficulty is, sensing hurt or anger or fear or grief, And just right from the start, offering a kind of kind presence to that. This is just seeing the humanity in yourself, the vulnerability, just offering presence. to take some moments to sense the goodness in your own being, that in you which really wants to be truthful and real, that wants to wake up, that wants to be free. So just to honor that, this is part of Namaste. 
we sense the vulnerability, we sense the nobility. And then beyond any expression of who you are as a person, to sense the beingness that's here right now. Sense that which is listening, the silence and the space that's here of awakeness. This is the formless dimension. To just be that to inhabit that and know that this timeless presence is your true nature. To see past the mask and come home to this is the true gateway to freedom. The poet Rumi puts it this way. He says, I must have been incredibly simple or drunk or insane to sneak into my own house and steal money, to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables, but no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. Now as a way of closing, to just allow yourself to bring to mind one or two or three people in your life and one by one sense what the mask might be, the persona, what you might habitually pay attention to. And then take some moments, much in the way you did inwardly, to listen and feel and receive the being that's really there. Sensing the goodness and the presence of each. May all beings everywhere know the blessings of loving-kindness. May all beings everywhere realize loving-presence as their true nature. 
May all beings everywhere live from that loving presence. May there be peace on earth. May there be peace everywhere. May all beings be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.